According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 this morning, picking up where we left off on Wednesday. We're in verses 3 through 11 at the moment, headed towards verse 5. But Paul really has a roundabout way of getting to verse 5, and so we are tracking that roundabout way. And uh, he uses a lot of present participles to lead up to it, to lead to the prime imperative. And the prime imperative, of course, is have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that have this attitude is the command. We are commanded to think in a certain way, to think the thinking that Christ thunk, and that's what we're commanded to do. But leading up to that comes these other prerequisites, these other uh, preliminary considerations, thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's verse 3. But with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And all of those are clauses, those are phrases that lead into the prime imperative there of verse 5. And they are contemporaneous And so if you fail to apply the uh, verbs that are listed there in verse 3 and in verse 4, then you cannot obey the imperative from verse 5. They are contemporaneous actions with respect to the the grammar of this text. And so we want to be clear on that as well. And then ultimately we want to think what Christ thunk in, uh, in his kenosis when he laid aside his privileges, when he emptied himself so as to accomplish our salvation. And that's what we drive at there. All right? So before we begin our study this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, and that we are humble to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the uh, privilege that it is for each one of us that we haven't earned this, we haven't deserved this. Uh, Who are we that we should be brought into your presence? And yet, Father, by your grace, we are baptized into union with your Son. I thank you for the position we have in Christ, the blessings and, and privileges that we have to stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. So we call upon your faithfulness this morning once again to open the eyes of our understanding, to feed us from your truth, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in dealing with uh, have this attitude, we want to make sure that we have it in the appropriate order. And that's what I've been uh, trying to uh, describe for you in these points of study. So point one, have this attitude is the climax imperative that follow two present participles, all right? And even if you don't care what a present participle is, at least get this, that these present participles in verse three and in verse four are describing the attendant circumstances that must be taking place for you to obey the imperative in verse five. And so we have regarding in verse three regarding one another is more important than yourselves, and looking out for in verse 4. And so um, I do like to use the ing form uh, when I'm describing this because to me it, it demonstrates the, the, uh, the contemporaneous activity, the present ongoing activity, uh, as it were. So if you ever stop inging, if you ever stop looking out for, if you ever stop regarding uh, the moment you stop those those uh, activities, then forget about verse 5. You, you will not be having the thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, when you stop regarding one another as more important than yourself, or when you stop looking out for the interests of others. The moment you start looking out for your own self-interest, you cannot obey the imperative of verse 5. And that's the, uh, the impact on this. So regarding and looking out for are uh, present participles that show the attendant circumstances for the imperative. And even behind that, we've got to back up another step because that regarding also has some preliminary considerations. Regarding one another is a climax participle. And it follows two negative thought processes. 
two negative thought processes. And so before you can even get to the regarding, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, you recognize that there is nothing from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit. And uh, I realize in the, in the English, if you're reading like I am from the New American Standard Bible, it says do. There, there is no do, all right? It is, uh, it's a supplied verb. It, uh, it's a supplied verb and, and, and not, I don't, not really hostile to the idea of do, but I think a better supplied verb is think. The better supplied verb is the one that comes from verse 2, whereby we have uh, think the same thing, think one purpose. We have the thinking verb in verse 2 that's used twice. And so if I'm looking in context for a verb to supply, otherwise all we have is, is just simply the adverbial uh, expressions, uh, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And, and we kind of want a verb to go with that, right? We kind of want a, a verb to go with a nothing from. And, uh, and so do is not bad, but I think think is better because think keeps it in the context of where, what we've been dealing with there in verse 2. So thinking nothing from selfishness, thinking nothing from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, and that's an instrument, that's a tool, that's what we use, humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. <clears throat> and so, again, it's kind of like reading a sentence backwards, and you diagram your sentence, and then you realize, wait a minute, uh, this main imperative in verse 5 has got a whole lot more that leads into that in, uh, in verses 3 and 4. And so that's what we've been outlining for you there. All right, well, I'm not going to repeat what we did last week in terms of selfishness, in terms of the empty conceit. If you miss those, then you can go get them off the website. Uh, just kind of be aware that we've had a week of bad recordings. So uh, I'm going to sound very low. Um, my voice will sound low, it will sound depressed, but it's the same doctrine uh, that had you been here live uh, would have sounded more cheerful than, uh, than the recording. Anyway, so that's sitting there, and we hope we got it worked out so this morning's recording will be going a whole lot better. Also, we talked about tapenophrosune, and we just spent the time dealing with tapenos, talking about lowliness, lowliness of, of thinking, and the humility uh, applications that we see there. And so uh, the different humility expressions we realize is the essence of the Christian way of life. God wants us to be humble. He is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And when we exhibit humility, we are Christ-like. We are imitating our Savior. When we exhibit pride, when we exhibit arrogance, it's just the opposite. We become then uh, chips off the old block as far as Satan is concerned, that you are of your father the devil. And uh, Satan is the prideful one. Satan is the one that uttered five I wills back in the day and launched the entire angelic conflict based upon arrogance, based upon his own pride. And so the resolution to that, the solution to that is the humility of Jesus Christ who humbled himself, who came in the form of a man and who identified with us and who bore our burdens on the cross. And that's why humility is what pleases the Father and arrogance is what he is opposed to. And so we dealt with the issues of humility there. Now, when we ran out of time was talking about regarding and of all the different verbs that we have for thinking. This one here, hegeamai, this one here, um, we, we have phroneo several times, ten times in, uh, in the book of Philippians. Um, we have hegeamai six times in the book of Philippians. And so both of these thinking verbs we have uh, again and again throughout this book. We have other thinking verbs as well, like logizamai, where we impute, where we reckon, where we consider. And, um, but this is a consideration that is left entirely within our purview. This is our consideration in terms of how do we esteem something? How do we value something? And so of all the ways you can consider something, we're not talking about judicial imputation. Let's, let's clear the decks there, right? We know that our sins were Im imputed to Christ's account. We know that His righteousness was imputed to our account. And that's a reckoning, that's a considering that God does judicially, that God does um, factually. He, he, he literally gives us the, the, uh, the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. And what a blessing we have for that, okay? Now, and so we've done those studies before. This is not that study. This is a study for regarding in terms of value, making a value judgment, and we, we want to place a high value on the things that we regard. 
And so perhaps if, if the word regard uh, doesn't do it for you, then maybe the term esteem might. And how do you esteem something? We're commanded to esteem uh, one another. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the passage in 1 Thessalonians says to esteem uh, your leaders very highly in love because of their work. And uh, in, in that First Thessalonians 5 passage we've taught before as well, related to that. And so we have the idea of esteeming. And the Scripture says, esteeming is our volitional choice. We choose how to esteem something. And, uh, and, and practically speaking, of course, we do this all the time. Husbands and wives do this all the time, usually in different ways. Sometimes in very spectacular conflicts. That uh, where the husband esteems something very highly, he puts a high price tag on that. He's looking at a at whatever. He's looking at a at a rifle or a handgun or a uh, whatever he's interested in. Okay, a scrabble board, whatever it is, and he's looking at it, and he's he's just amazed. He can't believe that it's only you know a thousand dollars, you know, because he has esteemed it so highly that he would easily pay twice that. He would easily pay much more than, than what they're asking for. So he esteems that very highly. Meanwhile, his wife, right next to him, it has a different estimation. Her esteeming, because she sees you know, no use for that in any of it, and, and she's already calculating uh, where that money could be better spent, you know, like feeding the children or something you know, silly like that. And so, um, you know, so we understand this, all right? And so men have a, maybe a different value system in things that they esteem. Women might have a different value system in, in how they esteem. Uh, same thing with generationally speaking, older folks versus younger folks. There could be any number of, of uh, earthly differences between humans that cause us to have a different scale, a different uh, thing that we esteem. And so when it comes to regarding one another as more important than yourself, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a value judgment. We're dealing with an attitude that looks to your brother in Christ and says, I highly value that person more than I value myself. In fact, I value myself as a zero, as worthless, because I'm valuing my brother as Christ himself, as everything. And so I'm looking to this brother, I'm looking to this sister, and I want to regard them as the one that I serve. I am looking out for their interests, I'm not looking out for my own interests. And that's what we see here in these, in these imperatives. So, um, or these participles, as, uh, as this case may be. So hegetemai is a, is a participle. And, and by the way, when you do your hegetemai studies, you're going to be shocked because there's really two dominant uses for the term, and uh, thinking or considering is only the first one. The second one is actually used as a noun, and uh, this uh, this gets used as a noun and is translated as leader. And in fact, where you're supposed to esteem your leader, sometimes the word for leader is is this very same verb right here, is the the one that uh, is responsible for making these value judgments. That's the leader. The one that is equipped to think and to choose and to esteem and to regard. So sometimes this noun gets used, or this term gets used as a noun, and it's translated as leader, depending on the, on the verse you're looking at. So, and, and it's the same 2233. So if you're, if all you're doing is looking at Strong's numbers, then don't be shocked if, uh, some of those get translated leader instead of, uh, considering. All right, so um, we see this, and as far as these verses go, I think we're familiar. We, we looked at several of them on Wednesday already. You remember 2 Corinthians 9, 5, and um, I thought it necessary. I considered it necessary. I regarded it necessary. And so this was a, um, a value judgment that Paul made as he was esteeming the Corinthians and their capacity to give as he was esteeming the Corinthians and their uh, struggles that they've had, and if they're going to get on board with the grace giving that the Macedonian churches are doing, he wants to make sure that they're doing it in the right way. And so uh, he urges them then in uh, 2 Corinthians 9.5 that they would um, prepare the, the money ahead of time so there wouldn't be any covetousness when, uh, when he arrives. Let's look uh, at these Philippians uses, as long as we're here. I know we saw them on Wednesday, but we can see them again, and then we can uh, finish the slide and move on. 
Um, uh, Philippians 2.3 is the first of our Hegetemai applications, but it continues. We're going to see Hegetemai again in verse 6. Uh, so uh, part of the attitude that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God. He did not Hegetemai. He did not establish the value judgment whereby equality with God was a thing to be grasped. And see, this uh, this is exactly what Satan did. Satan regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped and said, I will. I will grasp that. I will be like the Most High God. And, uh, and here's Jesus who is God and is willing to let go of the very thing that Satan was, uh, was, was grasping at, that Satan was pridefully uh, presuming to lay hold of. And, and Jesus is willing to let it go. Jesus is willing to walk this earth in the kenosis, in the humility of the human experience, and not one time does he ever access his omni-attributes. Not one time does he ever tap into deity. He sovereignly lays aside his, the privileges of deity, and never once does he exercise deity in his earthly ministry. So, that we'll, we'll study that when we study kenosis. Every miracle he did was under the power of the Holy Spirit. Every, uh, everything where some commentators think is omniscience isn't omniscience at all. It's, uh, it's an Old Testament prophet that's being clued in to different things that he's got to deal with on a daily basis. Every Old Testament prophet had uh, similar uh, examples of that. Uh, no, om- no omnipresence. He was monopresent everywhere he walked in his earthly ministry. No uh, omnipotence. Every miracle he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. No uh, omniscience, the things that he had insight to came again by the, the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit and, and so forth. Understand that. If, if Jesus even one time ever you know, cheated by tapping into his deity for even one little test, then he was not our substitute. He, did, he was not tempted in all things even as we are and yet without sin because he would have been able to cheat in, uh, in that regard. All right, still in Philippians 2, we've got, hey, get my again down in verse 25. I uh, esteemed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And it's curious to me how many of these verses link together the hey, get my verb with the adjective for necessary, for obligation, for a, for a have to, right? For a must. If, if there is something that has no options, if there is something that is just mandatory, have to, got to do it, well then, that's a pretty high price tag. <laughs> that's a, you're, you're estimating something at a pretty high steep price when you realize, you know, I don't want to spend this kind of money, but what option do I have? This is a, this is a must. This is a have to. And so uh, when, you, when you link together Hegetmai with, uh, with, with necessity, I find that uh, an interesting tandem. We get over to chapter 3, we're going to see it three times between verse 7 and verse 8. Three times when Paul is estimating his earthly credentials, when he talks about his secular, you know, his pharisaical degree and all of his educational background at the feet of Gamaliel, and uh, all of the advantages that he would have in just pure human terms. Starting with verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he starts to rattle off his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. That meant he was the greatest believer ever, <laughs> right? That he was, I mean, man, as far as the law goes, nobody kept the law better than the Pharisees. They were the pinnacle. They were the best. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he was able to out-Pharisee his fellow Pharisees. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. No one could level even the smallest accusation against him. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost. I have reckoned, I have counted, I have esteemed. And the verb therefore counted is, is our, the hegetomai that we're looking at here. So esteem it as loss. This is where if you have a, a ledger, right, and you've got black numbers over here and red, letters over, red numbers over here, and you're tracking your assets and your liabilities, the, the income you have coming in and all the bills going out, 
And, and this is when you just reckon something that other people would count as an asset and you say, no, no, I, I'm going to esteem that as a loss. I'm going to esteem that as a liability. That's, uh, that's moving to the other ledger as far as Paul is concerned. More than that, I count all things to be loss. I esteem, I reckon, I value all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Isn't it interesting when something superior can come along and then all of a sudden (laughs) the things of earth grow strangely dim, right? And the light of His glorious grace. You start, when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you realize, wait a minute, why was I esteeming that other Why was I valuing that other? And it just gives you that perspective. The more you grow in the Word of God, the more you grow in uh, in the faith, then you start to uh, make those value judgments accordingly. So more than that, I I, uh, reckon all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them, that's again, hegeamai, count them but scubalon, dung, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. It's all worthless compared to Christ. And so those are the uses there. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 is our passage with regard to our leaders, And so interestingly enough, of course, we have the word for leader, <clears throat> and then um, those, uh, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Not because they earn it, not because they deserve it, I'm sure they don't, in spite of their lack of earning it and deserving it. Live in peace with one another. And so there you have it. Second Thessalonians 3.15. Second Thessalonians 3.15. With respect to a brother that's not walking right, um, he was told if anyone doesn't work, neither let him eat. And here's a, a busybody doing no work at all. And uh, Paul says, that guy's got to get a job. He's got to go to work. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate him so that he will be put to shame. But do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so you should never esteem him as an enemy. He's not an enemy. All right? He's just a knucklehead and he's got to get some doctrine and grow up. And, and then he's got to be humbled. He's got to, he's got to live the doctrine that he knows. In some cases he knows better. But um, anyway, do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. See, that's not reckon imputation. He didn't impute faithfulness into Paul's account, but he did consider Paul to be faithful. That was God's consideration, especially at a time that no one else would have done that. No one else would have considered Paul faithful. He was a persecutor. He was a violent aggressor. And yet, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet God considered him faithful and uh, put him into service. Chapter 6 and verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. What is your boss worth? (laughs) <laughs> all right, and uh, go ahead and answer that question a second time after you rebound. Confess your sins, get back in fellowship, and now answer the question again, what is your boss worth? Because you're told to regard him, you're told to esteem him higher than you would otherwise. See, this is a value system that's based upon God and his word, that's based upon what we are called to do. The reality may be totally the opposite. He may have an intrinsic worth of, of something terrible and maybe the worst boss that's ever in the history of bosses. Nevertheless, we are commanded to regard him or her. <clears throat> all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that 
the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So that's our choice. How do we regard them? How do we esteem them? How do we value them? We should value them very highly. Three uses in Hebrews. My favorite chapter, of course, is chapter 10. I've said that many times. Hebrews is my favorite book of the 66 books, and chapter 10 is my favorite chapter of all the chapters in Hebrews. And we have uh, the joy of being uh, privileged to enter into the Holy of Holies and to operate as believer priests before the Father. And yet there is a punishment that is due to us if we defy God's grace And that's the warning of verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean? That's Hegeamai, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. When the, the blood of Christ is what saved you, if you regard it as unclean, that's serious. This warning is serious. The how much severe rhetorical question is infinitely more serious than anything an Old Testament saint could have done. The most blasphemous Old Testament believer, all he blasphemed against was a replica. He blasphemed against a a temple or a tabernacle or a, a, a shadow. They had the shadows, we have the substance. And so just consider that those guys were stoned to death on the witness uh, without mercy on the witness of two or three testimony, you know, the testimony of two or three. How much severe punishment do you think that we are worthy of when we uh, live in open defiance of, of our priesthood? That's the, uh, the issue there. Hebrews 11. The story of Sarah. We get this. Here's Sarah. And uh, she regards uh, God to be faithful. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. She had get a mind that he was faithful. She's an old lady. She's past childbearing age. But he said she was going to have a baby. So she considers him faithful. She, she reckons, she esteems him as faithful. And she, uh, she gets pregnant, she has a baby. Verse 26, uh, here's uh, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering, now here's the estimation that he made, he makes a value judgment. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's a value judgment. That's when you consider that uh, compromising your Christian faith for the sake of uh, some earthly bucks is not worth it. Even if it's a billion earthly bucks, <laughs> even if it's to, to make you one of the richest men on the planet, and uh, which you know Pharaoh's household would have been at that time, and yet uh, greater riches, the reproach of Christ, greater riches in the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. The reproach of Christ, when you name the name of Christ and bear that reproach. That's worth something. That's worth a lot if you're heavenly minded, if you have the divine viewpoint perspective with, uh, with respect to that. All right. Um, James 1 2. Everybody knows James 1 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Consider it. Reckon it. Esteem it. Value it. So that's a value judgment. That's not an imputation. All right, you can't make it joyful because intrinsically it may not be joyful. You're going through something sad right now, but you can esteem it. You can consider it. This is a value judgment. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, 
knowing, all right? Because you've got a divine viewpoint perspective that understands what it's producing. And you can identify with God and His grace, His faithfulness, His wisdom, assigning these trials to you, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's a joy in it. Say, thank you, Father. Uh, didn't know I needed more endurance, but uh, you do. You're, you're assigning me more. That's great. Thank you, Father. And endurance has its perfect result. Thank you, Father. You know, uh, what, what, what good is it to have endurance? Well, having it means you can use it. And having it when you need it is a good thing. Endurance has its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's a great description. We all want that. But that means we've got to consider it all joy when we go through the various trials. We can't get to the end of verse 4 if we're not faithful through the whole process of verses 3 and 4. And so that's a consideration. And in all of these, in all of these where God tells us how to consider, He just leaves it with us to obey, to do what He told us to do, to think the way He tells us to think. Because if we have a different attitude, then... He's going to uh, put us through that adjustment process. So that's James 1, 2. And then a whole string of verses now in 2 Peter that address this. 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3. Second Peter 1, 2, and 3. That's pretty much everything in 2 Peter. There is no 2 Peter chapter 4, <laughs> so here we go. All right. One thirteen. I consider it right. I esteem it right. I value it correct. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And so this is his uh, commitment to rep- repetition, redundancy, the uh, sanctified uh, repeating yourself so that you, you know what you're talking about and your people know what you're talking about and it sinks in. Verse 12, I back up a little bit, it says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Doesn't hurt to hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. See it again. See it for yourself. Remind yourself. Oh yeah, that's where that is. That's Second Peter chapter 1. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling. Paul's still alive, so let's teach it again. All right. And so we have uh, the blessings there to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And so uh, he's getting ready to be crucified. If the tradition is correct, he didn't want to be, uh, he didn't want to die a death identical to a savior, so he, he requested to be crucified upside down. And uh, all the legends and traditions indicate that that's what happened in, uh, in his own crucifixion that they hung him upside down and uh, he died uh, unworthy to be uh, identical to what our Savior went through. Uh, Over to chapter 2 and verse 13. These are false teachers and when they creep in, you show them the door so they can creep right back out again. (laughs) You don't want to tolerate false teachers, these creeps as they're described. They're like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. Hilariously enough, they think they know everything, and yet they know nothing. And they're reviling. Um, In the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. And they count it. Here's our term. They reckon it, they they, uh, they, uh, hegeemai, as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. How bad is that? They are so brazen in their darkness, they don't even hide it. They don't even bother going behind their parents' back. <laughs> you know? I mean, how bad is that? When, uh, when mom says no cookies or grandma says no cookies and you're going to sneak into the cookie jar, right? That'd be a disobedient thing to do. But how bold do you have to be? I mean, it's one thing to wait till mom and dad are in bed and then to sneak down into the kitchen and uh, to sneak a cookie out of the cookie jar where nobody's looking. But how about broad daylight? How about just right there, right in front of them? Say, oh yeah, 
and just open up that cookie jar and grab a big old handful. Living in open defiance. And that's what these guys are doing. Living in open defiance, counting it a pleasure. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. And it goes on to describe. It's a sad, sad circumstance. Finally, then in chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some estimate slowness, reckon, count, esteem. So this too becomes a value judgment. When something is just too slow for you, when something should have happened by now, when you're watching a wicked world and wondering why they haven't gotten, gotten it yet. Because if you were in charge, you'd have given them, you know, you'd have both barrels a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. And you don't understand why God is so patient and so merciful. As some count slowness. He's not slow. He's patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we should develop that same attitude. We should be looking around and seeing this lost and dying world. And instead of being all frustrated with those that are are not yet redeemed, um, we can imitate the patience of God and faithfully proclaim truth. uh, Gospel information to those that are not yet redeemed. And then verse 15, which says what I just said. So therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And hey, get my regard, the patience of our Lord as salvation. So do the same regarding that he's regarding. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Don't regard it as slowness. Regard it as patience and salvation and the, the blessings and the opportunity that, you know what, if the rapture had happened last night, I've got family members that would have been left behind. I've got uh, loved ones that would be left to the mercy of the one without mercy. And they'd be, uh, they'd be handed over to, to uh, this darkness quicker than anything. And so thankfully, because God is so merciful, then today's another day. We've got an opportunity to, to preach Christ in this lost and dying world. All right, so those are the uses there. The idea of something that's more important is something that we hold higher. Hooper echo, so you think hyper, right? You know anybody that's hyper? Hyper is over and above. Echo is to have or to hold. Echo is one of our more common verbs. In fact, you learn it in lesson three, I think, in the Duff grammar, you learn echo pretty early. Uh, But here's a hooper echo, something that's surpassing, something that's over and above, and uh, something that uh, occurs five times in the New Testament, three of which are here in Philippians. (laughs) So it's kind of curious to me how Philippians is such a hyper book. If if, uh, you see the concentration of the hyper echo terminology that's here. So starting in 2.3, coming back again in 3.8, and coming back again in 4.7, we have superior, surpassing in these expressions that we've already seen in uh, what, when Paul counted his credentials as, as a loss. So we've already seen uh, 3.8 and 4.7. No, we haven't seen 4.7. We saw 3.8 in our Hegat in my study. What's 4.7? The peace of God which surpasses, hyper-echo, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a blessing? To have uh, God's faithful provision, something that, uh, that we don't totally understand because it surpasses comprehension. That's fine. <laughs> he understands it. That's all that matters. And, uh, and that peace, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm glad I have it. I'm glad God provides it. I'm glad that it's a part of the stability that we have when we have an engaged prayer life to, uh, to be anxious for nothing but at everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And so we have the uh, superior surpassing value there. So regarding one another as superior, regarding the other as more important than yourself. If we ever fail in that regard, if we start regarding ourselves as more important, if we start to diminish our estimation of our brother and start to puff up our own estimation of ourself, then we've already gone off the rails as far as verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5 are concerned. 
there is no way that we will have this attitude in yourself which is also in Christ Jesus because we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of other people. That's why we say it is a prerequisite. All right, then we get to the looking out for. Thinking not for your own personal interest, looking out for your uh, not your own personal interest, but thinking of looking out for the interests of others. And Philippians two four. Not scapeo looking out for, and this too is, is that remember this is the second of the participles we got regarding and we have looking out for. Not looking out for your own personal interests but looking out for the interests of others. Now, you probably have, if you're reading like I am, the New American Standard or New King James or Old King James or any uh, most of the, the modern English texts, they want to put a word in there like merely. They want to put a word in there like only. They want to put a word in there that modifies the do not. Um, it's not in the Greek. There is no word in there that modifies the do not. In the Greek, we just simply have the not this, but that contrast. Not your own interests, not your own things, neuter plural, the things of others, the heteros, the other things. So not your own things, but other things. That's what we're supposed to scapeo look out for. And the idea of merely, I think, is a, is a quibble. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that's put in there by a translator who can't imagine that this text says what it says. This text says, don't look out for your own interests. And translators come along and say, well, everybody looks out for their own interests, at least a little bit, all right? And so they try to diminish the force of it by saying, well, you know, only a little bit, only an appropriate amount. You know, clearly you look out for yourself on a legitimate basis. You just don't want to go overboard with it. And, and while you're looking out for yourself on a legitimate basis, make sure that you also look out for the other guy while you're at it. All right? And I think that misses the point. The point is, you're already esteeming the other as more important than yourself. And so what's wrong with looking out for their interests and not looking out for your own? That's what the text says. Anyway, the word merely is not in there. Looking out for... The verb is scapeo, and this is where you're looking with a, with a critical eye, you're looking with discernment, you're watching for the snares. You, this is, uh, this is a, a word of alertful observation. Scoping out, present active participle. This is to watch out, this is to keep your eye on. This is, uh, you know, there's a troublemaker that's come in and you're keeping an eye out, watching out for those that cause dissensions. And the Scripture warns us to keep an eye on those folks. And so we have the the present active participle. Scoping out, not, but. That's what we see here. So scoping out, not your own things, but the things of others, the interests of others. Only six uses for scapeo, so it's not a lengthy study. doesn't take a whole lot. But when you see it, of all the different verbs for seeing and looking and observing, this one is particularly spotlighting trouble, where you are scoping it out, where you, you got your eye on it. You're not going to, you know, you might look away for a moment, but you're getting right back there. <laughs> you're going to keep an eye on that. That's, that's not good. Okay? Such as Romans 16, 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, Galatians 6, 1, Philippians 2, 4, and 3, 17. So right here in Philippians, not only do we have it in 2, 4, we're going to come back to it again in 3, 17. Brethren, join in following my example and keep an eye on those who walk, or observe, scapeo, those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Okay, Watch out for this wrong crowd. Follow the right crowd. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So when God tells us to keep an eye on something, we've got to keep an eye on it. God's not putting warnings out there for no reason. So looking out for the interests of others, not looking out for your own self-interest. Romans sixteen seventeen. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, 
contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. This is serious stuff. Keep an eye on it. For such men are slaves, not of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. It's the same warning he gives in Philippians. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Keep an eye out for those. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Well, don't be unsuspecting. Keep your eye out on those. <laughs> All right? Second Corinthians 4.18 Verse 16 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at, here's our verb, not of the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here too, it's a contrast. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. Are we keeping our eyes on the things above? Are we looking at the invisible? Are we getting our spiritual life distracted by things that are seen? More often than not, all right, that's, that's, where, uh, that's where it goes wrong. What's Galatians 6.1? We taught it not that long ago, right? Brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, remember this? You who are spiritual, restore such a one. There's a whole lot of grace that comes in this verse because we typically have lists of things we don't want to forgive. But this says anyone, any trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then what does it say? Each one looking to yourself. And that's scapeo. Keep an eye out. Keep an eye out because you could be next. Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And that's our uh, imperative there. So scoping out, watching out, keeping an eye on. When it says to uh, regarding one another is more important than yourself, looking out for the, uh, the interests of others, that's exactly what it means. You're watching out for them. You're not watching out for yourself. You're watching out for them. You say, well, if, I, if I'm watching out for them, who's watching out for me? They are. Don't worry about it. Your brothers are handling that. Your sisters are handling that. The Lord's handling that. He's sitting in the right hand of God the Father. He's interceding on your behalf. You don't have to look out for your own stuff. We've got brothers and sisters to cover that for you. And it's a marvelous technique that keeps you from being self-centered. Keeps you from being selfish. Keeps you from being misdirected into the satanic realms of pride because you're looking to the interests of others. And that's what we're called to do. Now I think this contrast here is not really a vocabulary contrast as much as a conceptual contrast. The pronouns are, are pretty basic as it relates to me, ta, heoton. So that's the things of myself. But the interests of others, the heteron, Allah ta heteron or heteron, okay? Allah ta heteron. So not self, not oneself, not re- so the heteron. The um, I'm sorry, the the hail tone. That's your reflexive pronoun that refers to yourself, and that's not what we're called to do. We're called to watch out for the other, the heteros, okay? And the heteros. This is a good use of heteros. If uh, you ever have some hetero confusion, this is heteros, okay? This is the other. And uh, we should be focused on the needs of others. And look at the impact that this has throughout the New Testament, not only in Philippians, but again and again and again we find that the secret to the Christian walk is focusing on others, not focusing on self. If Jesus was focusing on self, would he have gone to the cross? No. He would have failed at Gethsemane. He would have failed in the garden the night before. But he had victory in Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And so he submitted to the will of the Father. He kept his eyes where they were supposed to be on the needs of others, on the recognition that you and I are the ones that needed for him to be on that cross. He didn't have to be on that cross for himself. 
We needed it. And so, I hope I didn't give you too many here. <laughs> and maybe, um, maybe you have more, and, and we're going to look at these verses, and you're going to say, oh, pastor, you left my favorite one off. Okay, tell me what it was. I'll add it next time. So what's your favorite verse for considering the needs of others? What's your favorite verse for sacrificial love on behalf of others? These are mine. And I think they come up again and again and again when we see the, uh, the priority for how we operate in the body of Christ, in the local church. And this too, this is why you've got to be a part of a body. Joe Hermit Christian living in a cave can't obey the, the one another imperatives of of esteeming the other is more important than himself. He doesn't have another one to esteem. All he has is himself. He's, he's his own, his own uh, everything. That's not what we're called to do. All right. <clears throat> if my voice holds up, we'll, uh, we'll get through this list. But join me in Romans 12. All right? Now keep in mind, this, uh, this list here is not a vocabulary list. This list is simply a concept list of passages through the New Testament that reinforce for us that we're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve others. Romans 12, verse 10 and verse 13. This is in a a paragraph that opens with verse 9 about unhypocritical love. Let love be without hypocrisy. And I think everything that follows then comes underneath that heading. Because hypocritical love wouldn't do anything else in the rest of this paragraph. But love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Look at that. Be devoted to one another. You know what a devotion is, right? A devotion is something you're dedicated to. A devotion is something that you're sacrificing other things for. That's a devotion. You know what you're devoted to based on, I like to say, when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved. You know, are your kids always taking a back seat to this other thing that's going on? Well, okay, I get it. I know what you're devoted to. That's clear. You know, or what about your wife? Is she always taking a back seat to this other thing you're devoted to? What? Or, or does this thing take second place because you're devoted to your wife and she comes first? And so you always know a devotion based upon, you know, what gets, what gets pushed aside to, to keep this thing going. That's a devotion. And we're told to be devoted to one another in Philadelphia, brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Say, well, I prefer to do this, but you prefer to do that, so all right, I'm going to defer, right? My old pastor used to teach prefer and defer, and I think he got it from theme, the doctrine of prefer and defer. You prefer to do this, but you defer to your spouse or your brother in Christ or somebody else in the local church. So give preference to one another in honor. That's, that's the concept. The other is more important than yourself. You're looking out for their interests, not your own. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's who you're serving. Don't forget who you're working for. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Here we have it again in verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Yeah, but what about me? <laughs> what about me? I'm a saint. Can I contribute to myself? What about number one? See, looking out for number one, that's not a biblical way of thinking. That's a satanic way of thinking. We're supposed to be looking out for the interests of others. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And so right there in Romans 12, we have, we have that. We come back to it again in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we're learning about not judging one another and condemning one another and having grace towards one another as we make these applications. And it's uh, defined here as a way of serving Christ. Verse 18 says, He who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. You want to be a sweet-smelling savor in the sight of God? Serve the body of Christ. Serve one another in the body of Christ. As it says in verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Mutual edification, here to build up the other. And they're dedicated to building up me. That's why I don't have to be focused on me. That's their business. We pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Are we, are we dedicated to that? Are we pursuing that? Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. 
And um, that's what happens when we start looking out for ourselves. We're tearing down the other. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So you're going to tear down your brother? That's evil. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So you're causing them to stumble? How is that looking out for the interest of others? That's just selfishness on your part. And so it goes on. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. What a, what a verse. I love that verse. When it comes to our own application and what we're doing in our conviction is unto the Lord. It carries across into chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. It's not about us. It's about serving others. And if there is a present strength, that's a strength to serve others. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. But what about me? Who's going to please me? I want to please me. This verse doesn't allow for that. I'm pleasing my neighbor. My neighbor is pleasing me. That's how that works. We're serving one another in the body of Christ. For even Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So if we have that what about me attitude, that's not the attitude which was in Christ Jesus. Fundamentally, that's the, the, uh, the essence of Philippians 2. We're going to have that attitude? Stop thinking about yourself. That is about as unchristlike as you can get. Be thinking about the needs of others. And then you can have the thinking in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 10? There's a whole string of verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all about the other, all about seeking their needs. I'm running out of time, goodness. And this is very similar. It's again, um, like Romans 14, you've got a context where there can be different applications by different believers for different reasons. All is lawful, not all things are profitable. All is lawful, not everything edifies. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. See, not even a quibble word there. It's just seeking the good of your neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. But if one of the unbelievers... uh, Where am I headed for with this? Oh, verse 29. There's other things in between here. Um... There's yourself, there's the other person in verse 29, verse 32, verse 33. Verse 31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. And here's the categories. Pay attention. Either to Jews or to Greeks or to, aha, third category, neither Jew nor Gentile, the church of God. Okay, here's your divisions of humanity. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Well, there we have it. And the last reference is Galatians 6.4. We had it not that long ago. We're bearing one of those burdens. We're thus fulfilling the law of Christ. We're restoring such a one. Goodness. Yeah. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the reminder that we're here to serve others and not ourselves. Father, I pray that we would understand what these verses are dealing with and that we would recognize the, uh, the priority. The priority is not ourselves. The priority is the other. And so that's our spouse, that's our children, that's our family, that's our church family, that's, uh, that's everybody but us, <laughs> Father. And uh, with that as the, as the focus, Father, then we can uh, proceed. We can proceed into the, the full humility application that our Savior exemplified to have the thinking in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He laid aside His privileges. Father, show us what we must lay aside. Show us what it is that we're not willing to lay aside. What it is in our pride and our selfishness that we want to hold on to. We want to insist upon. What it is we can't let go of. And show us, Father, uh, what must be let go of.
so that we can uh, have this attitude in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for um, the Word of God that shapes our thinking. I pray that we would understand it, that we would embrace it, that uh, we would uh, dwell on these powerful truths and see the applications that are made. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.